Hi, I'm Andrew J. Boyle. Welcome to North by Norway. A long time after my childhood had ended, my first long winter in Norway managed to reconnect me with a sense of innocent wonder at the world I hadn't known for years. Early traces of adult cynicism were flushed away by the thrill of cross-country skiing in Nordmarka, the northern forest above Oslo. One of my favourite trails was out to a ski lodge, Hikut, which was approached by a long hill down to a frozen lake. Crisp blue sky, glowing white snow, there seems to be a body of light holding you up. To go down this steep hill with a hard wax on your skis suddenly seems foolhardy, but it must be done. Determination, concentration, adrenaline, and all bubbling away. You crouch, you try to keep cool, the sense of dizzying speed, and then you rip out onto the lake. Unsteady, astonished, and there's no way you could stop. Just try and keep the ski straight. It's 40 metres down to the bottom, but in this really cold winter the ice is like blue steel. Then there's the night trips, out in the middle of lakes, the stars suddenly prominent, the quietness tangible, until there's a crack like a whip or a pistol shot, very alarming the first time you experience it. But it's just the ice adjusting its position, <laughs> you hope. And my cross-country ski technique? Well, my enthusiasm was so irrepressible that I soon picked up basic skills by the try-and-try-again method, sufficient for whole days out in the woods. And there is also a cross-country code that has to be learned, uh, for me, the hard way for the natives have known all its customs and protocols since kindergarten. Here are two examples. It is unwise to stop and blow your nose where your ski trail crosses a forest road, if that forest road also serves as the corkscrew the popular sledging hill in the Oslo forest. In the years since, I've often thought of that young sledge driver and hoped that he had no lasting damage and even managed to have children of his own. And then there is the knowledge of when the lights go out. A few popular trails in the forest are lit in the evening and absolutely everyone knows when the lights are turned off, except those who don't know. The natives never think about it, they just know. So, as a novice, I presume the lights stayed on all night. I was about an hour's steady skiing away from civilization late one night. Ep, when I was suddenly consigned to my imagination and sense of direction to find my way home. I learned something 
odd that night, that my elementary ski technique didn't actually function in the dark. Turned out I wasn't so bad at getting about on skis as long as I could see them. All coordination disappeared with the light. There were also certain more demanding techniques that I really ought to have mastered before becoming quite as reckless as I was that first season. They became for me the three dark arts of the forest, and I'll come back to those a little later. I was living at the Kringshaw Halls of Residence, intimate neighbour of the Songsvan Lake and Nurmarka, the northern forest. I was high above the city, and this was my winter heaven. In the game of Snakes and Ladders, the longest snake can carry the unfortunate player all the way from the top to the bottom. In my first Oslo winter, the Songsvan metro line felt a bit like that. At the top was the forest, the ski trails, the lake and the light. But the metro track twisted and turned its way down through the suburb, past the ring road, past the Ullevall football stadium, past the university and on down into the tunnel under the city. The traveller emerged into the commuter hub by the National Theatre, the paving stones hazardous with ice and snow, people's faces withdrawn into upturned collars, blowing frosty breaths. And most mornings, Egil and I took the metro from the top to the bottom. Egil was the music student friend I mentioned last week, when we transported by tram through Oslo, an ancient television the size of a piano. Egil played guitar, I played flute, and in order to eke out our small student allowances, we busked for rush-hour commuters in the National Theatre metro station. Leading up from the platform to the street is an echoey passageway, perfect for acoustic instruments, and at half-past seven in the morning we would be there. Two raggedy students in army surplus greatcoats and fingerless woollen gloves. Between trains, I stamped my feet, blew on my fingers, and Egil, on a stool beside me, sat on his hands to keep them from stiffening. Then we heard the subterranean rumble of the next metro train and readied ourselves. As it entered the station, the train pushed a column of warm tunnel air ahead of it. I held my flute up to catch its full draught, and the keys that had frozen shut were released. Blip, plop, blip, plop, plop. The first commuter stepped onto the platform, and we were into bar two of Debussy's En Bateau. Oh yes, a class act, certainly but I longed to be on the metro going back up. The ladder, not the snake. And to get out again at the top and see the open sky and the inviting forest.
Now, the three dark arts of the forest. 1. The art of pronouncing the word Lape. Lape means clear or clear the way. And its function is much like four in golf. It's the warning you shout to skiers coming up a snowy slope as you speed down it. However, vital to the success of this time-honoured alarm is a clear pronunciation. Unfortunately, mine was so misjudged. It was rather a thing of wonderment and fascination to other skiers. Lope! Uh, Lupi! Lope! I shouted as best I knew how when I caught sight of a group of condom-clad enthusiasts having a chat at the foot of the hill I was unsteadily hurtling down. They looked over their shoulders into the forest deep, puzzled by this strange bellow. Was it an elk? Hmm, very peculiar. It didn't end well. This was at an early stage in my sweaty wrestling match with the Norwegian language. So early, in fact, that many days were overshadowed with despair caused by those exotic Norwegian letters, the ones stuck at the end of the alphabet after Z. They were A and Ö and O. But worse than these was the letter Y, because in Norwegian it is pronounced with a straining, pained sound shoved high up into the soft palate. E, Not Y, but E. It has no equivalence in English, and Leip is all about that lettered Y. Sorry, E. I can still now wake, trembling from a dream, my brain feverish, my tongue in knots, and know that I have been fighting a losing battle with the word leip. For foreigners, it is a troll of a word to get right. And what's worse, a flawed pronunciation could be a health hazard. So when I was hurtling down a hill, I had to find a different tool, and by trial and painful error, I did find the perfect solution. To clear a descending ski track as rapidly as possible, all you need to shout is English! Never failed, though I did afterwards have to offer up a word or two of reconciliation to my Scottish forefathers who were spinning in their tartan shrouds. Two, the art of changing track. Along the forest roads of Nurmarka, the ski trail is prepared by a track-making machine pulled behind a snowmobile. One set of parallel tracks is created for skiers going in the one direction, another set for those going in the other. To overtake a slower skier, you had to master the art of changing tracks. I would gawp in admiration when I saw snow gods execute that nifty manoeuvre. It was like a sudden glimpse of Torvilandine. 
Lift the first ski. Put your weight on the other. Skate out to the side with the first of your skis. Lift the other ski and push off with it. In the new track, glide away again. In precise, rhythmic actions, so elegant, so simple. You wouldn't be surprised to hear the tones of An der schönen blauen Donau, lilting from a brass octet among the fir trees. Long after I had become rather proficient in forwards and pretty gutsy when it came to downwards, the challenge of sideways would immediately expose me as the trainee in the tracks that I was. Most attempts at changing track ended in an unplanned sojourn in a snowdrift or a brutal stop at the foot of the nearest pine. But in this art, the art of making the cock-up look deliberate, I was a virtuoso. Even before the sound of splintering ski-tip died away, I had a bar of milk chocolate up from my pocket and my face folded in meditative appreciation of wonders of the winter forest. Number three. The art of applying clistered where clistered should be applied. So much enjoyment I had on this winter adventure that I tried to prolong the season into the green zone, the late winter, early spring zone, when snow has turned to ice and twigs and stones are pushing up through the ski trail. In the green zone, clister is king. Clister is a special wax needed to give the ski grip when all that is left underfoot is hard-packed snow and ice. Only this once did I ever try to wax my skis with this substance of the devil. It's more jelly than wax and has to be squeezed from a tube. With a warm, smoothing plate mounted on a primus gas burner, the clister is spread out along the soles of your upturned skis. Or so they say. What they don't tell you is that clister has extreme properties of stickiness and stringiness that can make it seem animate. Yes, in the wrong hands, it comes alive. A gelatinous monster that embraces everything in its path with syrup-coated tentacles. Mine were the wrong hands. I can't recall the exact chain of events now. Details have been repressed in my mind. Let us just accept that the following is not an optimal combination of things to be gathered in a tiny kitchen. One dilettante, me. One can of turpentine, one open flame. I hadn't secured my skis properly, and suddenly they slipped, and I was juggling two long planks, a gas burner, terps, and great gobs of Voldemort's wax of choice. Even before the terps-soaked kitchen cloth took fire, 
I had clister in my hair, on my clothes, on the kitchen wall, on the kitchen lamp. By the time I had doused the fire, I had singed my eyebrows, melted parts of my skis, and coated every surface in the kitchen with the greasy layer that comes from turpentine smoke. Since that day, I have had a heartfelt loathing for clister, and for sausage-skin-clad snow gods, who can command the monstrous jelly to dance for them along the soles of their skis, the most deferential respect. At the end of these two podcasts about the winter wonderland I was fortunate to experience on my arrival in Norway, I can't sign off without a few thoughts motivated by the widespread media coverage this winter of just how damaged ski sport now is because of climate change. Here are three quotes from the last two months. One. It's doubtful how much longer the cross-country skiing circus can go on, says the ex-world champion Marit Björgen. Number two, total snow crisis. There is no longer enough snow in Norway to go skiing. The month of November was no longer a winter month. Number three comes from a report from Switzerland, where the International Olympic Committee had gathered to choose hosts for the Winter Olympics. The newspaper writes, More and more winter resorts are disappearing. Global warming means that the IOC has had to remove half of the candidates it hoped would be able to arrange a Winter Olympics. Well, this is the first winter I really see that the loss of winter is becoming traumatic for Norwegians in ways that it only shares with a small minority of countries. Norway's cultural identity is to a great extent tied up with winter and snow. Just to give a relatively superficial example, for the last four years, Norway has been the most successful sports nation in the world in relation to population size. Now this might surprise you. It astonished me when I read it as I follow a good deal of football internationally, as well as a handful of other field sports. And there aren't a lot of Norwegians knocking about. But it is the way Norway wholly dominates a few winter ski sports that beefs up the numbers. The death of winter ski sports in Norway would be as harmful to its identity as population pressure in Britain leading to football league grounds being redeveloped for housing. There used to be a saying, Norwegians are born with skis on their feet, and I've actually seen cartoons to illustrate this mythical characteristic, the birth of a baby Norwegian with skis already in place. Uh, Cartoons, no doubt, drawn by men. Before anyone is carried off on a wave of sympathy, for the plight of a nation that has defined itself through polar heroes like Nansen and Amundsen, or Sonja Henne and Johan Koss and all the other medal winners at Winter Olympics 
it's worth keeping in mind one of the principal causes of global warming. The discovery of oil and gas in the North Sea in the 1960s transformed Norway's economy and has allowed the government to amass the largest sovereign wealth fund in the world. If we were to update the cartoon of a newborn Norwegian, he or she wouldn't have skis, but would be clinging on to a battle of North Sea petroleum. Next time, oh, what a podcast, the astonishing story of the composer who was carried to the top of a mountain on a kitchen chair. But for now, tusen tack för att du hört på. Thanks for listening. Mm.